Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. We are in New York today with two amazing women. Hillary Sterling, the chef at Vix and a chef cycle rider. Uh, I call you an athlete, uh, I know, Hillary, I like that. because Thank you. <laughs> I haven't actually, I, I haven't seen you cook. I've tasted your cooking, which is fantastic, <laughs> but I've seen you ride uh, at least 600 miles now between yes. the two rides that we've done together. Uh, and Kathy Barron, who I've known from a long time from the NBA. Uh, Kathy, I didn't realize you are now president of social responsibility and player programs. Yes, uh, but not a chef. <laughs> so you're not a chef. But when I knew you, you've been at the NBA for a long time. Oh, almost 18 years. Six, 18 years. Yeah. Uh, and you started out in um, kind of the community service yep. started side out of as it. vice president of community relations. Yes. Now you're like almost running the whole place. Oh yeah, definitely. Don't uh, don't think so quite yet, but uh, a president, a president title is pretty. Oh, it's good. good. I like it. Um, there's a bunch of things I want to talk with the two of you about. Um, I think of you both as really strong women in a world that uh, at least used to be kind of a man's world, both the chef world and certainly the world of, of professional. Uh, uh, athletics and, and the NBA. And I know that uh, our listeners are going to want to hear a little bit about, just to begin with, how you got to where you were. Hillary, I think you started cooking at a very tender age. Is that correct? I started working in restaurants at a very, very young age. Um, how young? I was 14 um, when I started, and I was working in the front of the house. I was bussing tables. Where was this? Um, this was in a place called the Blue Marlin in Montauk. Because I could walk there from our summer house. And my parents said I could have a job if I could figure out how to get to and from. Um, and I just fell in love with it at that moment. And I was fascinated by the uh, the gentleman in the kitchen named Tom who wore a toque and a neckerchief. Super old school. And it was so strict. And it was just a this beautiful rhythm um, that I fell in love with. And, and I'm still... I'm still hanging on to it, and I still love it. But you went from there to actually get a degree. At I did. Cordon Bleu and uh, <laughs> well, and, I, little, I mean, you're really. I had a pit stop a on, to college first, and pretended that I didn't want to cook, and then I went back to culinary school afterwards. Um, and then after Le Cordon Bleu, I came back to New York and figured I went to Le Cordon Bleu in Chicago. I was working in a. Uh, a logistics brokerage house for trucking companies. I was moving things from point A to point B, and I was like, "Well, this can't be. This can't be how to spend my years." I miss being in that restaurant, that action, um, that immediate gratification of serving people, not just moving a truckload of of something to a truckload of place to another place and back and forth. And I came back to New York, um, and I started working uh, for Bobby Flay at Mesa Grill in two thousand three or so. Um, and I really got to see what New York restaurants were about and, and, and that passion and that drive. And it was really amazing. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for the world. And who was your inspiration for starting at cooking in the first place? Um, you know, it's, it's funny. We, we talk about this a lot, and I give it to my grandmother always. And my mom gets really mad every time I say this. My grandmother lived with us, and the house always smelled different when she was cooking. It had this warm and fuzzy feeling, and, and you knew it was... Um, you knew it was something. It didn't matter. And she was born in the Lower East Side, my grandmother, so she constantly believed that she always cooked like it was during the Depression. So every bagel was split into threes, and every you know dinner was uh, repurposed to breakfast. And, and it was this like constant utilization, which I think is a, a conversation we should have all the time now. Um, and it was all up to my grandmother. Um, my mom worked and was too busy, and my grandmother just cooked. I mean, stuffed cabbage and and cakes, like salmon cakes and zucchini cakes and these little baby pancakes for breakfast. And 
Um, I give it to her all the time. Well, just so your mom doesn't feel bad, I'll bet we've talked to close to 100 chefs in the course of these podcast episodes, and nobody has, almost everybody's said my grandmother or sometimes my grandfather. Nobody's ever said my mom or my dad. Well, well, let me jump in then on the grandmother thread. My grandmother lived with us as well. My grandmother came over uh, to America from Ireland when she was 15. Um, and um, became a domestic, as many of her uh, contemporaries did, and was uh, cleaned houses and and then started cooking, and cooked for Babe Ruth. She was for two wow. years Babe Ruth's cook. <laughs> grandmother cooked for Babe Ruth. <laughs> and, Who can say that? Exactly. That's, that's super cool. And um, so she and she lived upstairs. Did she from say us what three, he ate? Uh, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she lived upstairs from us. We lived in a two-family row house in uh, in, in the Bronx, and uh, she would always cook as well for for us and so we sort of lived in in our house i have one of six kids we were in our house and then you'd go upstairs for sort of a second meal or something else and if you didn't like what my mother was making you could run upstairs and see what my grandmother like would options. make for you so <laughs> um she uh it's funny when when uh she died in 1994 and um the the headline in the Daily News said, Babe Ruth's cook dies. So we were like, <laughs> "Wow, hey, she's our grandmother. <laughs> now, you were quick to say that you're not a chef, but I you've got not. twins, I think. So yeah. you must cook a lot. I cook nothing. Right? No, come on. I cook. With twins? I, I, my mother, so give it to her. My mother is with, living with us now and, and helps us uh, raise our children. And, uh, How old and are the I, twins? They're 10. Okay. Boy so and girl need, twins. Yeah, that, so that, that requires yeah, help. Yeah, I, I cannot cook anything. Um, I, it was my, they're both of their birthdays a couple of years ago and I brought, had bring muffins into their classroom and I was sitting with my son and one of his classmates and the kid said, uh, these are good muffins. And my son said, she didn't make them. <laughs> so my kids know that I'm not, uh, I'm not the one who's, who's putting, uh, the food on the table. Well, when you get a chance, take everybody, including your mother to Vicks. I will You'll, do that. You will have a I fabulous meal there. Kathy, you know, I've always felt this bond with you because you and I are kind of uh, like recovering politicos who uh, pretend that we don't do politics now, but we find ways to work our political views into into what we do. But you started out working for Governor Cuomo, uh, Mario Cuomo, at one point. Uh, and then I think you and I met when you were at um, New York Cares, uh, which you were also running at the time. Um, and so it feels like a natural progress- progression to being doing what you're doing with the MBA. But how did you get involved in the politics and the and the service community in the first place? You know, so sports has always been, I think, the consistent thread in my life. I, I played uh, basketball in college um, and, and didn't really have a sense of anything else where'd, that where'd I was interested in. The University of Hartford. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do at all. Um, but I got involved in student government when I was at, at Hartford. And... My senior year, I was president of the student government, um, and it just sort of got a chance to do things I'd never done, completely outside of my comfort zone, and um, got interested. It was uh, when Geraldine Ferraro uh, was on the uh, the vice presidential. She was in 1984. Uh, 1984, vice, uh, exactly. Uh, vice President Mondale's, yep. who was the presidential nominee, yes. his vice presidential right. selection. Billy, with all the details. Um, uh, so, and I had uh, had a chance a couple of times uh, that I think spring and summer maybe to uh, see uh, Geraldine Ferraro and, and sort of got interested in politics and wanted to get into politics. And the advice I got from a then congresswoman in Hartford, who was my commencement speaker at Hartford, uh, was to go learn how to raise money. 
that uh, that was a sort of skill I would that always would be able to invaluable. use. Exactly. Um, and so I got my first job out of college. I was a fundraiser for the United Way here in New York City. But I wanted to get into politics and did the usual sort of writing to people that I uh, had admired. And I was a big admirer of Governor Cuomo's and never really got anywhere with my letter writing. But then I had a chance to uh, uh, work on a, a United Way project with a couple of people in the governor's office and um, had the chance to uh, to work for him for almost seven years and uh, both in the government and then uh, as a fundraiser, as it turned out, uh, on the campaign in 1994, which uh, we unfortunately lost. Um, and that transitioned me then into an opportunity to become the executive director of New York Cares, which was a great nonprofit organization. Uh, loved it, learned a lot, um, and had a chance to work with some great organizations. But I always had a basketball, love of basketball. and you always had one uh, eye on the exactly. court. Exactly. Yeah. But I didn't think about a career in, in sports. And then I uh, we did a project uh, with the NBA um, when I was at New York Cares, and I had a chance to meet David Stern and a couple of other uh, folks who were or leaders. David at Stern, the, when David he was Stern, the former yeah. commissioner of the NBA, right? And um, and then in you know 2000, I think it was, they they reached out to me to see if I'd be interested in, in, in joining uh, that organization. And um, I'd never worked in the private sector, so I thought it would uh, be something worth trying. And you know, hard to believe, but it's almost 18 years since. Wow, I didn't realize you were seven years with Governor Cuomo. I think of that as a job. Just having worked on Capitol Hill myself, where you learn how to do absolutely everything, everything. and yeah. I don't know what the equivalent is in the restaurant industry. Probably just being a chef, just where just you, right, you chef. have to yeah. learn every <laughs> single aspect of the industry. But I know that in politics, you've got to learn fundraising, media, organizing, policy, you know, pre- everything. Yeah, so it was great also training for it, anything it, you want to do. For me at the time, it was. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm old, um, and so you know, no, no phones and no email, really. And you know, you had a pager, and you know, you had to find a phone when the pager went off, and you had to make decisions, and you had to think on your feet, and and so it was uh, the right time for me in terms of, um, you know, I think if if my career had been happening now, I wouldn't have had the 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 experiences that I did because. You you had to think on your own feet, and I'm sure you have that every day in the in the kitchen and in the restaurant. Every day something comes up that you have to make a decision on. Now, you know you could send an email or a text, or you call somebody so quickly. I'm not sure that that, that people are are having to to think on their own as much. I think you know it's something that we we try to talk about with with the younger folks on my staff that um, you know make a decision. You know if if put in charge, be in charge. <laughs> so. Absolutely. We talk about it all the time. Thinking on your feet, fast moves, um, and standing by your decision. You made a decision, stand by it, whether it's right or wrong. It doesn't matter. At least you're standing by it. And I think that's the most important thing, especially with the younger people. I mean, I'm not uh, that old, but I still... Um, that old? You mean as old as Billy? Or? <laughs> well, well, I no. didn't say it. <laughs> so as, as the oldest guy in the room here, I, I, was, I was actually telling my 12-year-old son... Um, about the olden days, and particularly about politics, Kathy, because I was remembering back in 1984 when I worked for uh, Senator Gary Hart, who was running for president, uh, we used to, um, during the heat of the primaries, try to get to three or four states a day. You know, we had our own plane, a big 737, and um, a couple hundred press with us and the Secret Service and so forth. But everywhere we landed four times a day, at the end of the event, we had to have AT&T bring a bank of 100 payphones. They did this. This went on all day long, every day for a year. 
they would bring 100 payphones because there, there, was, there was no such thing as a cell phone. If the reporters couldn't file their story, there was no sense giving the speech or doing the event. So, I mean, just con- that sounds archaic, right? And, of course, my 12-year-old looked at me like, did that really happen? Yeah. <laughs> used to fax articles to the governor's office. <laughs> um, I, I started off by describing you as two strong women who in some ways uh, have been strong in what at least uh, originally was a, what felt like a man's world, both in terms of the restaurant industry and the, and the sports leagues. Is that true? Is that something that um, resonates yes. with you in any I mean... way? <laughs> uh, uh, have you had to change? Has, has changing culture been part of what you have to do? Have you had to live through the whole hashtag me too kind of world um what's it what's it been like because you are you are really formidable leaders in a world that's been you know dominated by men for historically i mean it comes up a lot this is a question that i'm i'm sure kathy you get this too i mean i get this a lot and um and recently people ask even more yeah i mean there's definitely a line where you're like wow i'm i'm alone here um okay but it's, you, you know, if you, I had a goal, a drive, a mission, essentially it was, and in the end, yeah, it was tough. And you were definitely the low man on the totem pole, whether you were or not. And definitely with all the different cultures within the kitchens, I definitely had more problems earlier on coming up as a manager. When you say the different cultures within the kitchens, how, I mean, how do you there's mean? definitely, there's um, a lot of people with different backgrounds. Okay. And the way they view women, um, maybe a little bit more of an old school mentality. Um, so it was, I definitely had a fight. I had to fight a lot harder to make sure that, um, I got the jobs and I got this, kept them and I became a sous chef and a chef of cuisine. And, and honestly, I think it became, you became a smarter manager. Um, I think you, uh, um, got crafty, you know, you learned how to lead by examples. I, you know, I have, you know, many funny stories and that there may be funny now and they weren't that day. And, um, one of my, um, I had this crazy Irish chef. She's going after the Irish cafe. Uh, sorry. I mean, I worked in an Irish pub. It was one of my first real jobs. I fried uh, blood sausage and I made Irish breakfast and I ate those uh, potato chips, uh, the cheese and onions one. Totally. Um, he used to torture me beyond. He would use every pot and pan in the kitchen because I had also washed them. But then there was these, um, these two, two very specific moments where he had such a thick brogue and he would be yelling at me in the middle of service, and I would have no idea what he was saying. And I had to run downstairs to get something, and I didn't know what I was looking for. And so then I would, he would stand at the top of the stairs, like making me feel like terrible, like I just needed a bun or like something silly, like an onion. And I still couldn't understand him. And then he would literally like torture me the rest of the evening. And then he would also feed the dishwasher. Dishwasher was really a weird guy, something really sloppy. So he would stand there and stare at me with this like full of ribs and chicken fat and all over his face and just <laughs> stare at me all night. And it was a little uncomfortable, um, but I finally figured out how to do my job better. And I under- finally understood his uh, language um, and this like accent barrier that I just was like, so, so could not figure out. And then the- he also believed in that when it was your last day, they would dump um, the kitchen like bucket on you. Well, that must be attractive. Yeah, it's awesome. It's really awesome. The bucket of scraps? Yeah. So, like, there's always a bucket on the line of, like, technically now it's called compost in the kitchen as we use it. Um, and he basically, they would, like, chase you around on your last day and pour this bucket over you. Like, like go on the roof kind of, like, to make sure when you're taking the mats out that he would pour a bucket of sludge on top of your head. And this is an ingredient called liquid smoke. 
um, that probably stayed with me for a good week. So yeah, a couple of torture moments. There you go. <laughs> but I think it, you, I think it taught me how to become a better manager. I think it taught me how to get to know people better and figure out what made them tick and why I couldn't get them to respect me or, or not, or, um, and to keep it a full circle and then learn about them. Um, yeah, it's a predominantly a male world that in the kitchens, but it's funny if you think about it, who really cooks in the world, you know, the, the women really are the most of the time, those are the ones that are cooking the meals. Um, so I don't, I, I can't say I've had horrible experiences, but definitely some interesting ones that I keep with me and I remember, and I think it just makes me treat people in a, such a different way. You know, I, for me, having worked in politics as well, which was also pretty male dominated, I had the chance when I worked for, for Governor Cuomo, um, I had a lot of senior women um, in the administration. And so uh, we were, I, I think, a little bit different than some of the other folks that we were dealing with at the time. Um, um, and then when I went to, when I was at New York Cares, you know, I think we probably 80% of the women uh, of the staff were women. Um, and, you know, diversity was trying to hire a man. So, um, and, and then when I went to the NBA, um, both David Stern and now our current commissioner, Adam Silver, really um, believe in, in a diverse and inclusive workforce. So I'm, I'm occasionally... Um, the only woman in a meeting, but not very often. Um, sometimes I'm the only person who's not a lawyer. Um, but uh, I think, to, you know, just something that Hillary said that I think is really um, the most important. You just have to always be, especially now, you know, manage a pretty large group and you know, seen as a leader at the, at the league office um, and with our teams. And um, you know that, as long as you're doing things the right way, um, that's what you can control um, and how you manage people and hopefully, again, inspire um, a younger generation um, of you know, trying to grow and make sure that women are given the opportunity to succeed. Um, I think it's important and part of um, my responsibility, if you will. Um, and so that becomes Again, how you inspire them is by being, I think, authentic and genuine and true to yourself and make sure that they see that that's what it takes to succeed. Um, and and so um, that's that's what I have always tried to think about. Hillary, you're now kind of like at the top of your profession, right? You're a chef at a great restaurant. And you call your own shots. Tell us a little bit about your just kind of philosophy of the experience you're trying to create both for your guests, for your for your team. Um, when people come to VIX, what do you want them to feel? Well, it's, you know, that's something we actually talk about. I talked about it this morning. Um, you know, when you walk in that door, we want to we wanna remember you. We want to make you feel at home. And I think that's one of the most important things about restaurants right now. You want is, to remember, it's not that you want them to remember you. You want to remember them. I want to remember them. I love that. I want to know what you ate the last time. I want to know that you don't like parsley. I want to know that, you know, your child doesn't like basil on their pizza. And we have a, a guest that comes in frequently that can that the child comes in with the, the wife and he can never remember what the child eats. And he comes up and asks me, he's like, what did she have last week? And, I, and I'm like, of course. And I'm the person that's going to remember it. I want to make sure it's an experience over and over again. Um, the group has a, a three other restaurants and we all have the same philosophy. We utilize local and small farmers. Um, we do the best to be as as um, 
local and resourceful as possible. So the four restaurants, we all cook in different ways, so it's kind of fun. So we all have the same ingredients, the same farmers, and uh, Vix is mostly Italian, a little bit of Mediterranean. Um, and we want that philosophy, and we want those great ingredients to shine. We don't manipulate food to a place that you won't recognize it. You're going to eat a carrot, you, it's going to look like a carrot. Um, and those farmers work really hard on growing those things, and we want to let them shine. It's about them. Um, so that's kind of like that whole, um, I know my farmer's names, I want to know the guest names, and I want to make sure that you feel that you're walking into an extension of your living room. So there's a, so, so Kathy Barron's is not the only social responsibility person at this table, right? I mean, there's an element of social responsibility that you're trying to foster, uh, which I think is... Is that new in the, I'm at, not new like last year, but, you know, chefs used to be chefs and cooks and then they became celebrities and now they're becoming agents of social change. Do you, is that something you feel or is that something I'm just putting on you? No, not at all. But I mean, this is part of it. Like you're, you know, we make sure that we're there with the farmers. They, you know, if they can't deliver to us. We're going to go to them. We keep them going so that they can do their jobs because I, I don't know how to be a farmer. I, I have no idea. I don't. I, I mean, I would love to learn more about it, um, but they're good at their jobs, and we want to make sure they have another season. Um, and what they do at the farmer's market is really special, too. They go there three times a week, and they're driving from these remote like places where their fields are in Pennsylvania, upstate New York, hours at a time to make sure they can get their products to the people that want them. And it's not just about the restaurants. It's about all of the neighborhoods that they go to. Some are in Brooklyn one day, one are in Manhattan, one is up in the Upper East Side and Upper West Side. So they can reach different markets and different people and kind of share their beautiful ingredients um, and allow people at the markets to purchase them um, without having them to go too far. Because ultimately it, it affects um, it affects our economy, it affects our environment, right? I mean, in terms of the, the role that farmers play, particularly small farmers, uh, is pretty integral to the type of society we have. Absolutely. I mean, I think people, there's so much more room for farms out there, but it's such a daunting business. I mean, as our restaurants, to be perfectly honest. But um, farmers don't make any money. But it's really important to the environment, to the climate, to all these things to keep these plants growing and to keep moving forward um, and to not be putting chemicals in the ground and then becoming large manufacturers that, that don't, don't care about the products. Um, so all these small people out there, they're getting bigger because we're standing behind them. And we as a group of chefs in, in major cities and, and that really enforce these policies that, that can afford to buy these products. Some of those smaller towns, markets are a little different. And it's, it's more challenging for small town farmers. And how about for restaurateurs? Is this something that um, only celebrity chefs or the great restaurants can um, afford to pay attention to? Uh, are you in the minority in terms of your colleagues in the restaurant community uh, having this sensibility and making this the priority? I, mean, I hope that you not. I hope I'm not a minority. <laughs> I mean, you know, you go to the market on Wednesdays and Fridays and Saturdays and you see the same chefs there. They're there. We're there hiding. Sometimes we don't want to talk to each other. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we want to slip in. You know, you know where your farmer is and you want to get in and get out. Or sometimes you want to chat and see what everyone else is doing. But there are so many people at that market. Um, I, I think I'm I'm not in the minority at all. I think the restaurants that can do it should do it and will do it. Um, but, you know, the price is, is becomes a little bit higher for the guest. 
but they know that those products are coming from a great spot. We're not going to, we're, we're treating them with the utmost respect and nothing will go to waste. So I hope that that translates to the guests through our food at VIX. And that's kind of what we do. Um, we make sure that carrot top is utilized, those turnip greens, those beet greens, those pig ears and nose. That's, that's everything that everything goes in and there's no waste. And, and I just hope I can get people to buy um, head cheese and testa and those things. I've got this image of you at the farmers market. You're you're lying about you know where your farmer is and you want to get in. And you want to get out. I, I like the idea of hiding. Of you. <laughs> I mean, uh, if you just sneak up 16th yeah. Street, sometimes you can get what you need. And no uh, doubt. yeah. Uh, well, Kathy Barron, social responsibility is kind of your thing. It's not your only thing, but it's a big thing. And and you've actually your personal leadership, I think, has a lot to do with why the NBA. National Basketball Association is considered, you know, on the the the, the frontier, uh, really on the leading edge of all of the sports leagues when it comes to social responsibility. How have you done that? Well, thank you for saying that. I, I'm not sure that any one person gets credit. I mean, I think you know it's an interesting um, correlation a little bit between sports and sports teams and restaurants. I mean, they're almost like community treasures um, and. There's a sense of, of community for people who are at our games and a sense of community when, you know, you go to, a, you know, when you're at a great restaurant and you're with people that are enjoying it, whether you're um, sitting at the same table or you see other people in a restaurant. There's something special about great restaurants and there's something special, I think, about what sports teams can mean in communities. Um, and I just think for us, you know, at the NBA, um, our 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 sort of history is a game that's um, diverse, inclusive, global, um, and has had players who have always sort of seen the value of being um, engaged in the community and um, and recognized. You know, we don't no helmets. We're not out in center field. You're right there, um, and people know who you are and what you look like. Um, and so, um, I think. Certainly over the last number of years, social media has been another way for our players to uh, be front and center and um, use the platforms that they have to, to, to just be engaged in very meaningful ways. And our job at the league office is to, just to help them and to facilitate that and to create opportunities where uh, whether you're an employee of the league office or a team or whether you're a player or a former player, uh, that, that, that we can help facilitate um, your involvement to whatever degree you want to be involved in something that matters. Um, so our job is to organize that. So your number one customer is the players themselves or the the members of the league, the employees of the league? Yes, no okay. question about that. I mean, ultimately, the the number one customer is the fan. Um, but but in terms of making sure that the that the players are. Um, that the players are, are able to do their best in the community. And, um, you know, same way we have you know, coaches who help them uh, with their uh, on-court skills. Uh, one of our responsibilities is to help them with their off-court skills. And that includes the work that they do with the media or includes the work that they're doing to try to, um, you know, complete their education or uh, think about uh, their next career or to be involved as a community leader um, in whatever cause or issue they want to be involved with. And one of the things when we developed the MBA CARES program, part of the idea behind it was to to not sort of be so directive with our teams or our players and say, this is 
what you have to do and this is who you have to do it with, but to give them a, a menu of options. And a lot of that, you know, came from my learning at New York Cares when I was there, um, which is it, New York Cares is designed to get people engaged in community service and volunteering, um, but but to give them lots of different ways to do it, lots of flexibility. And so that, that sort of is, is a driver for us because I think that's when our players are at their best, when they can genuinely and authentically involve themselves or their family or their own philanthropy in something that really matters to them. Um, and that's when they can make the most difference. So drill down for us a little bit in terms of who are some of the players that are, are most engaged and who are inspiring others and what's some of the impact that they've actually had on the lives of kids or communities that they work with? Well, you know, you probably I just, got a thousand I know stories there like are, that. there are a ton of stories. I'll just say I was, you know, we were just in Los Angeles for uh, NBA All-Star uh, and and had a you know, series of, of fantastic events um, and great partners who helped us execute those events. Um, one of them is a, a program we've been doing the last couple of years to try to improve the relationship between law enforcement and uh, communities, especially communities of color. Um, we think that, um, that these community conversations that we've been hosting allow uh, young people and communities to uh, get to know the police and for the police to get to know uh, the young people and to kind of understand each other and uh, stand in each other's shoes a little bit. So um, when we were in Los Angeles, we've worked with an organization there called Brotherhood Crusade to help us facilitate these conversations. And it's um, it's powerful. And there's nothing we like better than when we had a couple of players um, uh, Andre Drummond, uh, Damian Lillard, and DeMarcus Cousins, three terrific all-all-stars. And um, after that event, each one of them said, I want to do that again in my community, with my school, with the Boys and Girls Club I grew up in. You know, they understand the, the power of, of that So this is kind of leveraging the draw of the players to bring community together yeah, we're, in a way we're, that yeah, otherwise wouldn't a- happen. Absolutely. And, and, and our players... Um, you know, our players have had, many of them have had really interesting and, and unique journeys. And so uh, they've been where some of these kids are. Um, and and uh, it helps that um, that they can share that, again, genuinely and authentically. And not, you know, they're not reading from a set of talking points. They're talking about their own experiences. And it really resonates. Um, and and they, are, they are sort of in the unique spot where um, the kids look up to them. Um, but also the police look up to them, um, and, and, you know, they can sort of draw them together and, and create a conversation and, um, and it really helps. And then we did a number of other, you know, our players all weekend were, were incredibly involved. I think, um, you know, Steph Curry, LeBron James, they were the captains of their teams. They, they each played they just, for, yeah, they picked their own teams, yeah, they this picked year? Their own teams and they also played for charity. So Le- LeBron won uh, more money than Steph did for his charity. But uh, Steph actually played for the Brotherhood Crusade and, and LeBron for uh, the after school all star. So philanthropy is a part of it. But the hands on service, we had a number of players who were out. Uh, in the community, building a playground and uh, working uh, at the Los Angeles Food Bank. Uh, as you know, we're always committed to those those programs. And um, so it's it's just those opportunities that then create others, hopefully, and and uh, inspire our our fans and and guests to to be engaged as well. But but we've got um, we've got a, a group of of players right now, I think, who are as community minded and as um, as focused on using their platform for 
for good um, than than I think at any other time in, in our history. Even though there's a through line between um, you know the players of of the past and the guys of today, and they appreciate that. You know, you play the All Star Game on Sunday, and you know, we've got some great video that's out there of LeBron going over and thanking Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for for sort of paving the way for for these guys um, both on and off the court. Um, I have the same question for each of you. Um, it relates to what you've just been talking about, Kathleen. You could take it first. Do those uh, who are in your world, the players in your case, uh, those who work with you in your restaurants or other chefs, uh, Hillary and yours, do they come into this? Uh, and I know it's hard to generalize. Do they come into this with this uh, commitment to serve? Or in your case, Hillary, this kind of commitment to the farmers and the environment and the way you do things? Is it something you have to inspire in them? Do they look to you for mentorship? Um, I'm, I'm sure it's some combination of all yeah, of those, but gonna, tease that out a little bit. Yeah, it, it, it's works. definitely, t- it's, it's a, I think it's a combination. There's no question. I mean, I think there, wh- one of the things that we love about, um, again, our game is, you know, the, the former players are around. So, you know, these all-star weekends kind of turn into these sort of family reunions in some ways. But so, and, and again, partly because of the proliferation of social media um, and our ability to tell stories and players' abilities to tell their own stories, they're inspiring the next generation already. Uh, you know, so we know that, you know, whether it's at these community conversations or, you know, if, if, if kids are seeing that this is what LeBron James does in his downtime um, or Steph Curry talks about an issue that matters to him, that inspires people um and it inspires um the you know best players who are in high school right now who think about oh when i get to the nba i want to be like that um i want to be able to be the guy who's not only a great player on the court but you know who's considered a great professional off the court and so but it's it's it it is also something that we taught and 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 teach these guys all the time it's not uh, you could, we don't just take it for granted we make sure they understand that it's part of who we are and sort of in the DNA of, of, of being a part of the NBA is that these are going to be opportunities you'll have. And, um, and so we hope that they come with the, the sort of personal drive to do it, um, but it's our responsibility to help, you know, bring that to life. Hillary, how do you think about it in the, at the restaurant? I mean, the word inspiration keeps coming up and keeps popping up, and it's uh, to inspire people is, is this moment where you're, you're, their eyes light up. Um, I, you know, when we place ads to look for, you know, staff, we talk about our farmers, we talk about our market, we talk about our whole animal butchering, we talk about all that stuff. And I think that might get them in the door, but to keep them, to keep them excited and interested is about to inspire them. Um, I can say that when I look at my staff, I need to show up just as much as they do every day and to really give them a reason to come to work and really celebrate, um, we try to bring our farmers around a lot, so um, you know, do dinners with them, so they can meet them and they understand how hard it is their job and how important it is that we take care of their products. But inspiring younger people is 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 all of what we do. It's exciting. It's it's rejuvenating every day to be like I have this amazing little bunch of frisee today. I know it may be silly or like where it came from, but th- what are we going to do with this today and why? What inspires me to help figure out what to do and, and, and honor these vegetables? And it's, it's really amazing. The, the look on their eyes when they, when they see something and it lights up, that's, that's what it is. And 
And I think the work that we do as chefs for charities, too, really, um, that comes home with you as well. So my staff knows about No Kid Hungry. My staff knows what Chef Cycle is. My staff is uh, from the front to the back. They support everything that we do. And I think that's getting to our guests as well. So if we serve X amount of people a week, they're learning about the charities and they're waking up and being, and, and we're telling them about it. We're, we're kind of like this middleman, essentially. We're, we're producing a product and we're telling them why. And we're showing them about a farmer who did this and his name is Chris and it comes from this place in Pennsylvania and, and why we're doing this and the proceeds go to X, Y, and Z. Um, so it's kind of like this constant education, um, inspiration cycle that we do at the restaurant. And it's not just about food. It's about a message. Kathy, just to give you a sense of um, Hillary as an athlete, as I mentioned, <laughs> and as well, I guess I think of you, Hillary, as adventurous because I was telling uh, our producer, Woody, uh, Paul Woodle, the story of how Hillary and I met um, maybe three winters ago. I was here with my family, Rosemary, who you know, and our son, Nate, um, and we asked some of our colleagues, what's the best restaurant we could try on this visit? And they said, you got to go to Vicks. Hillary Sterling's the chef. And I didn't meet Hillary that night, but they've got this big, one of these big oversized kind of menus. Uh, and at the very bottom, there's a tiny little logo. Is it still there? It's still there. <laughs> uh, there's a tiny little logo. It's like it's so small you can't believe it, of a bike, of a bicycle. So I was like, well, that's interesting. I wonder why she's got a bike on her logo. She must be passionate about biking. So I emailed her the next day. We had not met. And I said, uh, are you a biker? And we've got this ride. And she was, I'm in. It just, you know, for 300, you know, 300 miles in three days. It's a big commitment. I'm in. So um, we've, you know, so you've both talked about all the great parts of the job. Let's just, uh, for the other side of the, the sake of the other side of the coin, what's the hardest part of, of the job, oh. Hillary and Kathy? I mean, you know, what we do is so important that it's consistent. I think that um, that the the act of re- repetition over and over again and making sure that we're doing the same thing every day. Because people have an expectation when they come into VIX. It's going to be, they want you know, those, my like, boss is going to be like this. It has to be that way. It doesn't have, a, we don't have a choice. It, uh, that's my job is to make sure we're consistent and that's me teaching our staff how to be there. I think that's the hardest, that's one of the hardest parts. I mean, there's... There's a whole long list of the uh, hard parts about being a chef, and but we I like focusing on the positive ones here today. We don't <laughs> um, uh, hardest part of your job, because um, uh, you, know, you and you were saying that you work with a very diverse group of yeah. players. Sometimes I imagine they go off script a little bit. Yeah, but that's not the hardest. The hardest, honestly, is to you know we, we're you have to say no to great organizations and great causes. Um, so you've got to be strategic. Yeah. And 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 just discipline because you know you could you can you can you could say yes to everybody and then you wouldn't be able to do the things uh, well enough in my in my in our vine. So we that's the hardest the biggest challenge is to be disciplined enough to say it's a great cause you're a terrific organization but it's just we can't be involved or we can't be supportive because I think we would just spread ourselves too thin. So we want to it's 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 a challenge and we get asked. A lot. Oh, so I, I can't even imagine. <laughs> um, it's uh, we say no a lot too, but but we get we're really inundated with requests well, to to partner. Well, you're making me feel good because uh, the NBA has been a great partner of Shark Strength's No Kid Hungry campaign, and I, I feel like I'm glad to hear that we're one of the organizations that got selected in rather than exactly, screened out. Exactly. But you you actually I mean you have been very generous uh, in every way you can imagine, including making introductions to a lot of players who have gotten engaged with us or former players, both, 
um, that really make a difference for all the reasons you described. Their drawing power, the cachet they have in various communities, been very exciting. Well, you guys have been a great partner, and I think for us, it, you know, the, the the challenge of saying no is offset by the joy of when you get to say yes. Um, and so um, we 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 work, we think, with some of the best organizations out there that are that are really doing good work, but that are good partners that help us help our players or help our teams. We don't have all the answers. That's not, you know, we're not in the business of, we're in the business of basketball and entertainment. Uh, so we need good partners to help us facilitate the good things that we want our teams and players and employees to do. So I think we work with some of the best organizations. You know, you know that I, I love the the work that, that you and your sister Debbie have done uh, with Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign means a ton to us. Um, just personally, you could see, and you know, we've had players who have had, you know, individual stories, really personal stories that have connected um, with um, with the people that you're trying to help and the, the people you're trying to get to help them. So um, it's, it's meant a lot to us as well. Um, there's an amazing woman um, with the WNBA, uh, Ruth Riley, mm-hmm. who just got married. Um, I saw on Instagram and she sent me a a note, but uh, Ruth grew up on food assistance, and uh, I think was maybe a single mom uh, with a, with, a, with two or three kids, uh, and just has this very compelling personal story about both the role that food played in her life, but also the role that sports and basketball yep. played in yep. her life in terms of making a difference. But I think that's you know Hillary talked before about inspiration. So when we first asked Ruth to get involved, she did not tell us um, her family story, um, but the more she got involved, it sort of in, you know her comfort level. And her ability to be inspired by the stories of other people. And, you know, we were, we were a few years into the, the relationship and the program, and she had done a number of events. And she said, you know, I'd like to do more here because I haven't talked about this, but I, th- this was how my family survived. And, and my mother made enormous sacrifices, but it wouldn't have been possible without the assistance of these programs that they're trying to save and improve and grow and make sure that more kids have access. So, um, and, and she has been a, just a fierce advocate on this issue and, and passionate and inspirational. And when you find people who can give you that um, authenticity um, and who can, who can both be inspired by others but then provide inspiration to others, I mean, that's what we're here for. Since we're edging closer to politics here, I feel like people are so, some way so looking for what each of you represent, which is the ability in their own lives to be making a difference in the community. Um, how do you think the country is going to get through this? You know, I'm I'm starting to feel a little more optimistic about things. Um, I um, I I believe in the power of young people. I always have. Um, I think we're seeing the the students um, from. Parkland, Florida, um, I think changed the debate. I hope changed the debate um, when it comes to uh, to gun violence. Um, I think um, the women's marches, um, having brought my 10-year-old daughter to the one in New York a few months ago, I think they're inspiring. Um, so I'm optimistic. I think that um, you always have to remember that um, not everybody is going to agree with you. I, I hope, I'd, I'd like to see us be get to a place where the conversations are a little more respectful. Um, and it's hard when uh, people at the highest levels um, are not respectful themselves. So I think we've got to, we've got to continue to push on that and not, uh, not allow this to be a normal way that, that, that our leaders uh, operate. So, but I'm optimistic that, that uh, I'm not sure if it will be um, 
you know what will happen in in the next series of elections um but i'm i'm optimistic that that um that this this will not be the norm i think i agree i think we're on a we're on a path um as sad as some of the stories have been i think we're we're moving forward and i think that power of the youth is really where we sh- should focus right now um and i think continuing to lead by example i think that is is the step by step every day um and hold yourself accountable accountability is is number 1 in 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 our world and in in my daily life as well um yeah i i am i i feel i feel that same optimism it does seem like our country course corrects from the extremes uh if you look at the kind of the, you know the broad sweep of history and that course correction is often led by the next generation. Um, so hopefully that's what we're seeing today. Um, I'm so grateful to both of you for enabling us to have this conversation today. Hillary Sterling from VIX um, and No Kid Hungry supporter, Chef Cycle rider, um, all around 360 degree supporter Absolutely. of our work. Of course. Thanks for being with us. And Kathy Barron's over almost decades now that we've known each other. Um, so grateful for your leadership and your commitment and just the, the example that you set in terms of helping people see what can be done in community. Your whole life's been about that, and it's made a big difference. Thanks, well, thanks for being Bill. with us. You've, you've been an inspiration for me, too, so thank you. You're kind. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir.